Good morning. How are you? Good. Justification by faith, um, fundamental doctrine, if you would, in the Word of God, certainly something that had come up uh, in our studies this past week. So uh, before we dig into that, though, just a few announcements, and I want to read a couple of emails I received as well. Uh, Brian, we have a one-on-one after service, uh, and also next week, uh, or next leadership meeting is Sunday, uh, September 13th, which is next week, okay? Uh, I just wanted to, every so often I receive encouraging emails from individuals, and uh, depends on what actually sparks the emails is really what drives the content. I received a couple after the most recent blog on what it means to handle pressure, which was titled The Diver's Watch. And I thought I'd share uh, them with you. The first is from a man in Kenya. Greetings, the servant of the Most High, Pastor Edward. Let me first apologize for writing one long paragraph. I'm using a simple phone to write. You have kept me wondering because two times you have hit on the target. I have been under pressure for the last two days. You know Kenyan teachers have been on strike for the last week. As a teacher, we are trained to endure every type of hardship. God knows about it, and that is why He has sent you to encourage me. We are working in deplorable conditions I have begun to have a glimpse of what God is like. He comes to His people at their hour of need, as He did to Elijah. There is no need of describing my state to you, because He has said that He cares. God, in the name of Jesus, I thank You for my brother Edward. I thank You for the encouragement I pray that you enable him to continue to be a source of encouragement to many. Overflow him with grace and favor and those he serves in Jesus' name. Amen. Your servant in Christ. A letter from Kenya. And that's uh, important for you to know because I've mentioned this many times that the ministry is um, global. There's well somewhere over 200 countries that we go out to on the internet and there's a lot of folks out there that uh, are not blessed with something like this I, as I was reading the word deplorable I'm looking around we have an air condition there, there's our big discomfort you know I can hear the air conditioning running it's uh, just a matter of perspective isn't it The second email came from someone in the local assembly. To my shepherd and life. To my shepherd and life slash soul guard. Our Lord has blessed you with an amazing gift and heart. Can't fathom not having your words and example through the Holy Spirit in our lives, pulling us up for air while treading water in this crazy world. 
Thank you, Father, for this blessing, and thank you, Pastor, for being you. So thank you to that person as well. Uh, and I read those things again to give you encouragement because as far as I'm concerned, we're all in this thing together. Uh, we all have different roles, different spiritual gifts, uh, so be it. Um, but as pressure continues to mount, it's good to know that there's a unity from the other side of the planet as well as within the community that we call the local assembly. So I'm always grateful uh, to hear those things. Amen? Amen. All right, let's bow our heads. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, for giving us a day to worship you in fellowship together in the faith. For it is this faith that draws us ever near to you, Father, through your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For it is this faith that you've imparted to us by means of grace, along with righteousness and eternal life. Father, we pray that this morning's message fall on fertile soil, soil that you've prepared from eternity past, soil that is able to grow in your grace and knowledge. Father, we pray also for those not able to be with us this morning, those still suffering, those lost, those dying without the hope you've given us. We pray that this morning's message be carried to them so that they too might be saved. Therefore, we ask that you bless this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls and May it challenge each of us as we hear your calling upon our lives. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit we do pray. Amen. Again, justification by faith is this morning's message title. It's rare that I do this, but I have two videos this morning. Um, I'm going to show the first one now, so whoever's got the lights, please shut it down. And this will get us situated. Many of you are familiar with the song, possibly even the video. But it's a good point of reiteration. It will get us started uniquely.
get started, folks. Again, this morning's message title is Justification by Faith. Now is the time to focus. Philippians 3.13 says, Forgetting what lies behind, Matthew 6.34, Do not be anxious about tomorrow that cleaves out yesterday and tomorrow, leaving us doing this thing that truly does matter most. So let's take advantage of the grace we've been given once again. I want to begin by sharing the same post, public post that I shared on Thursday, for it is the, and has been the impetus for much of this morning's lesson. To the confused sinner, I wrote this publicly beyond the pulpit. False religion says God justifies the, quote, godly, those who do good works. And on the basis of that, a person is saved. That's a lie. The Word of God says, but to the one who does not work, but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness, Romans 4.5. Too many people, even some that falsely believe that they are saved, do not understand this critically important distinction. A person is saved by faith, which is a gift, as we'll see, not faithfulness. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It's been interesting because on several occasions now, over the past year, the Spirit's taken significant time away from our primary course of study to revisit salvation basics. There's a subtle, a very subtle issue that most of you uh, understood as it was taught on Thursday. And this was in response. These are the feedback or the feedback that I've received so far. However, at least one person that I know of uh, says they missed the point. And they were just being honest. They weren't being um, derogatory in their statement at all. They just honestly said, I, didn't, I missed it. And that's often the Spirit's way of telling me to press on with the subject. Hence, this morning's entire lesson on the topic of justification by faith. That great pattern that is resoundingly obvious in the Bible Again, to our previous point, though, to help, that last phrase, a person is saved by faith, not by faithfulness. In other words, and this is the subtle point that he brought out on Thursday, if you think that the act itself the, of faithfulness, called out often as fruit of faith in the Bible, of true faith in the Bible, if you think the act is the basis of your justification, you are deceived. That is your flesh trying to stake a claim to some sort of a work of your own. 
Furthermore, the flesh will take it to an even more primitive level with the act of believing. And I'm not splitting here. It's important up here on the board to dig a little deeper. Believing means you're accepting or receiving something as true. That's all it is. There's no work. There's no merit to believing, folks. As soon as you think there is, you've made it a works program. So believing means you're accepting, receiving something as true. In salvation, you believe that you receive the free gift of salvation in Christ Jesus. That's different than saying God justifies or saves you because He accepts, He accepts or receives your believing as a good work. That's not how He views, and that's not the gospel. So again, believing means you're accepting or receiving something is true. In salvation, you believe that you receive the free gift of salvation in Christ Jesus. That's different than saying God justifies, saves you because He accepts or receives your believing as some form of a good work. I gave you an example of you sitting on one side of a room and God on the other. In brief, if you say, yes, I believe I need a Savior and Jesus is Him, then grace says that God will get up Cross the room while you remain seated, and he'll hand you the faith that is worthy for his justification. Only then are you saved. You must realize that you had no work in your salvation, not even one iota. So, contrarily, if you say in that moment, yes while believing that the act of believing is a work that is part of the basis of your justification, then you've missed the boat. We, that would be like you saying yes, getting up and crossing the floor and receiving. We cannot attempt at salvation or afterwards to put God on a works program. We cannot attempt to put God on a works program. God sees the heart. Sure, there are certain sequences of events that occur at salvation and even before. But the worst thing we can do is create a salvation formula out of those things like some do. If you create a formula, you've given the legalist a false hope. You've given them the building blocks for a counterfeit gospel. That's what a salvation formula does. It gives the flesh something to work with, you see. Oh, I have a works now. So as long as I do this work, I can demand X, Y, and Z from God. So I will put God on a works program along with me. So if you create a formula, you've given the legalist false hope, you've given them the building blocks for a counterfeit gospel. Formulas put God on a treadmill. The heart doesn't have to be involved 
in satisfying a formula, you see. God sees the heart. Religion, legalism, the flesh. They love formulas. They love it because it's all about a works program. Again, formulas put God on a treadmill. The heart doesn't have to be involved in satisfying a formula. God sees the heart, though. Religion, legalism, the flesh, love, formulas. So the principle is, saving faith is a grace gift. Even your believing cannot include any works or merit whatsoever. Otherwise, the gospel has been perverted. Even your believing, the act of, if you think the act of believing was something to behold, that God was somehow uh, impressed with you being able to receive something freely. If you put God on a works program like that, you've missed the boat. Because that gives you, even though it's a tiny little bit, a little credit for your own salvation. And in that case, your heart is wrong, and God sees it. And it doesn't matter how uh, convinced you are of it. It does not matter. God sees the heart. And until you're 100% humble in that moment, you're not saved. That's why so many religions, especially the most popular one around here, is so corrupt. They've even made up places that don't exist in the Bible so people can be prayed out of them after they die. What does that reek of? The cross wasn't enough, I guess. And if you believe in that system, you're not saved. I hate to say it. You're not. Because you don't believe that the cross was enough. You're not 100% humble. You still think you've got to do something for Uncle Jimmy who died three years ago. Yeah. That's the, dis- that's the disgustingness of what the flesh will do in religion. And people eat it up. Why? Because that's what they want. That's what they want, you see. That's what the flesh wants. Most people want to put God in a works program, put Him in a little box and say, I'm saved. You told me if I didn't believe in Jesus Christ, I'm going to go to hell. I don't want to go to hell. Seems like a really bad place to me. So I guess I'll say I'm saved. I guess I'll do a little lip service like I used to do with my parents, you know. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, I totally get it, Dad. Thank you for your wise counsel. (laughs) Who are we playing games with? We're talking about eternal things, folks. We don't have that option to play, uh, play the dice. You see what I'm saying? I was telling DJ before class, it's like the person who plays the stock market. Well, as soon as it ticks down, that's when I'll sell. No. That could be the rapture. That could be your own death. And you have one chance, and it's called life. It's too late. You don't get to decide after. Oh, man, that guy, that ball guy was right. You don't have a, you don't, it's too late. And if you care about people, folks, you don't have to like them, but we're called to love others. If you love others, you have the same problem, the same indignation that I have right now towards those who are fooling and deceiving others. So even your believing cannot include any works or merit whatsoever. 
Otherwise, the gospel has been perverted. The second major principle the Spirit gave us this past week was this. Faith produces faithfulness. That is a true statement. Faithfulness, though, doesn't produce faith. A lot of people that, quote, do good, a lot of people who, you know, walk old people across roads and pick up their groceries and all these kind of things, and those might be things that we do from a position of true faith to help others. But faithfulness, the fruit, doesn't produce faith. Therefore, saving faith is never a product of faithfulness or belief as works. Rather, it is a gift from God. Simply stated, believing is receiving. Believing is receiving. God has no reason to justify you on the merits of the act itself. As soon as you think that believing has merit, that it in of itself is a good work, then you miss the grace. Believing is receiving. The gospel is the good news about justification. God is gracious and merciful. God is a loving God. For those who non-meritoriously believe in God's salvation, He imparts saving faith. But believing is receiving. You can't have any part in it. You have to believe that God is a gracious and merciful God, that He is a loving God. For those who non-meritoriously believe in God's salvation, He imparts saving faith. Given that we have the cross to look back towards, this pattern for salvation, even with the Old Testament saints, tends to give people a little trouble. People seem to be confused. It's easy enough to say, oh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. You and your household, right? Acts 16.31. All right, that seems easy. Well, what happened before the cross? Are we to suggest that everyone either what? Somehow uh, knew of the cross before it was revealed? Somehow uh, knew the name Jesus Christ before he was even incarnate? Are we to suggest that in ignorance and just write it off? Or are we going to understand what the Word of God has to say about justification proper by faith? Well, I'm on the second boat. I want security. I want to know truth. I want to know what the Bible has to say through and through. I don't want to have areas of um, confusion in my soul. I want to understand. So given the fact that we have the cross to look back towards, the pattern for salvation with the Old Testament saints tends to give people a little trouble because the cross hadn't happened yet. But most of us are so conditioned with the gospel as we see it with its definition today that we can't fully understand how people were saved in the Old Testament. But I'm here to assure you that there's no cause for consternation or confusion. The good news about salvation has been the same since the fall in the garden. The troubling question for some is, if Christ wasn't personally known, and it is fair to say that the Old Testament saints would not have known Him, nor His cross, then how were the Old Testament saints saved? 
How did that happen? The answer is simple. Go to Ephesians 2.8. Ephesians 2.8. The answer is actually very simple. The problem is that some of us have been so narrow in our scope, in our desire to box God in, that when that happens, you've boxed truth out. Ephesians 2.8. It's very simple. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. There's your pattern. Okay? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. The pattern for the Old Testament and New Testament salvation is the same. It's the point on the board. God is gracious and merciful. God is a loving God. For those who non-meritoriously believe in God's salvation, He imparts saving faith. That's why we looked at someone that was even before the Mosaic Law, Abraham. Abraham's a perfect example to help us through this since he predated the Mosaic Law even, where some could argue that since the Messiah was prophesied of, they would have, quote, known him. And there is some truth to that. There is certain prophecy there, of course. But you see, Abraham lived before that. So he's outside of the Mosaic Law even. The cross wouldn't have been known the way that we know it today. It wouldn't. In that sense, the gospel message was more defined. It is more defined today. But the pattern has always been the same, regardless of dispensation. Romans 4, 2-3 up here on the board. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. That's Ephesians 2.9. So that no one will boast. For what does the Scripture say? The Scripture says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. This was in the midst of Paul arguing against the Jews at the time, who were trying to put God, and were very good, at putting God on a treadmill. They had the law, you see. But Paul said, you know what? Abraham was saved, the one that you guys revere so well, so much, the father of the Jewish nation even, and he didn't have the Mosaic Law. He didn't have any of these things that you're trying to justify yourself by works. So what say you, almighty Jews of that time. Now, for the sake of clarity, we are working out not just Abraham's salvation proper, but more so the pattern that God imputes righteousness to a person. And how is that done? Whether it's salvation or with reference to a believer's sanctification, the fundamental tenet here is simple, up here on the board. Abraham's example... God imputes righteousness to those who believe non-meritoriously 
in his promises. Abraham is a perfect example of someone credited with righteousness, both at salvation and through sanctification. Can you do a righteous work by means of the Spirit even now? Of course you can. But you have to actually believe in that very thing. God imputes righteousness to those who believe non-meritoriously in his promises. Abraham is a perfect example of someone credited with righteousness, both at salvation and through sanctification. I quoted uh, Pastor John MacArthur on this topic, and I'll give it to you again up here in the board. And that is what is in the mind of the Apostle Paul as he writes in Romans 3 through 5 to present this great treatise on the fact that nobody is going to be saved by some ritual or some noble moral effort or religious activity. Salvation and heaven are available, but not through any external action, only by grace through faith and that faith in the true and living God who has now revealed himself in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is therefore no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. And while Abraham did not know of Jesus Christ, he certainly wouldn't have known anything about his life or death or burial or resurrection. He did know that salvation comes by faith alone, and he believed that. And he believed that God was a God of grace who would give salvation to a sinner who knew he couldn't save himself. So Abraham becomes the model of justification by faith. So you ask yourself, what is this phrase? I hear it a lot. What is justification by faith? The very title of this morning's message. Well, I'll help you. Being made righteous is what's in front of us. To be justified means to be made righteous. That's the short order of what it means to be justified. It means to be made righteous. Justification by faith is something that occurs when you believe. He gives you that faith. Righteousness is imputed to a believer at salvation this way. It is also imputed to a believer in time this same way. Righteousness is imputed to a believer at salvation this way and is also imputed to a believer in time this same way. So again, being made righteous, to be justified means to be made righteous. Justification by faith is something that occurs when you believe. Righteousness is imputed to a believer at salvation this way. It is also imputed to a believer in time the same way. Abraham's a wonderful example because we know he was saved, but we also see that God said, hey, go. Read Hebrews 11 when you get home. Go. Well, where am I going? Hey, go. And what did Abraham do? He went. How many of you would leave your lives and your families etc. behind and go and not know exactly where he's taking you. Would you call that faith in God? Yeah. Abraham believed. So this was an ongoing pattern. And even his works were justified. 
made righteous. Believing means you are accepting or receiving something as true. In salvation, you believe that you receive the free gift of salvation in Christ Jesus. That's different than saying God justifies or saves you because He accepts or receives your believing as a good work. That's wrong. Faith produces faithfulness. Faithfulness doesn't produce faith. Therefore, saving faith is never a product of faithfulness or belief as works. Rather, it is a gift from God. And then finally, believing is receiving. God has no reason to justify you on the merits of the act itself. As soon as you think that believing has merit, or is a good work, then you miss the grace. So the pattern's the same, folks. It's not complicated at all. It's justification by faith. I want you to remember now that this morning, before we even close, we will be celebrating our Lord's Supper where we remember our Savior's work on the cross. He is the Savior of all mankind, through which all believers, regardless of dispensation, have been justified. If it weren't for His work on the cross, Old Testament and New Testament saints alike would be going to the lake of fire for all of eternity. So let's not be confused just because we as, you know, finite-minded human beings can't understand this statement that Jesus Christ was and has always been the Savior of the world, even before He was incarnate. Don't let that bother you. Just because the Old Testament saints were saved by faith doesn't mean the object of their faith faith wasn't the Son of God. Just because the Old Testament saints weren't saved by faith doesn't mean the object of their faith wasn't the Son of God. They may have only known Him as God, which Jesus Christ is, recall. But they also knew Him as Savior, Redeemer. Job, for example, calls God His Redeemer. Go to Job 19.25. Job 19.25. Job didn't know Jesus Christ. He didn't. He knew God. He realized, Job 19.25, that he needed God, that he needed a Savior, and he knew that God would redeem him. That's the faith that preceded the cross, you see? That there was a hopeless and helpless, humble saint that said at some point in their life, there's no way I can do this on my own. God, you have to save me. I believe that you can save me. I believe that you will save me. You then, God, are my what? Redeemer. You will find a way to pay the price 
and they didn't have all the details. But they were given faith and righteousness, and therefore they were saved. That's the great pattern, folks, in the Word of God. Justification by faith. Job 19.25, Job says it plainly, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And most theologians would agree that Job lived before Abraham. So there was no Bible. You're looking at a huge book, a huge revelation, and you're privy to certain details. So you have to sort of have an out-of-body thought and experience and say, well, what was Job's fundamental posture? (laughs) He didn't have any of this. He didn't know Jesus Christ. But he had faith that God would save a sinner in need of a Savior. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will take His stand on the earth. As King David, who also wouldn't have known Jesus Christ by name, said similarly, go to Psalm 19.14. Psalm 19.14. And these are attitudes, folks. These are heart issues. Salvation is not a string of words. Say these things with me and you'll be saved. I believe the Lord Jesus Christ. Wrong. God sees the heart. That may be congruent. That may happen at the same time you say those words, but the words themselves would be a works without the heart. If you think that the words alone are what save you. Because they don't. Because guess what? God sees the heart. These people didn't even know Jesus Christ, and they were saved. These people had more faith. Job was the blameless and upright one, none like him, right? They didn't know Jesus Christ. They knew God. Psalm 19.14 Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, says David. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. David was, if nothing else, a very humble man. What have I been saying from this pulpit for years? The key to all of this is what? Humility. Humility. Did either of these men understand? Is there a, there's nothing, can you put something in front of that? I got the sun bouncing off someone's car. It's literally right in my eyeball. Is there anything you can do? No, 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 no off the car. Stand, turn it right around now. Look at that car. Anything you can do? All right. That's sacrifice. I don't see anybody else jumping up. Oh, Lord, my rock and my redeemer, did either of these men understand the cross the way you do now? No. How could they? Neither of these men. None of the Old Testament saints. Did they understand the cross the way you understand it? Do you understand, did they understand Jesus Christ became a man from heaven and died on the cross? That that was the 
means through which we're saved? Did they understand that? No. They had faith that God would find a way to save them. And they were okay with it. They were justified by faith. They believed God after the same pattern we noted with Abraham. Job arguably before, David after. So you see, it doesn't matter what view or which dispensation is in view. It's always been justification by faith. But one thing you must always remember is this divine viewpoint. Now, you have to concentrate on this. To God, the plan of salvation, this whole justification by faith, and the means, the cross, have always been simultaneously observed by Him. God doesn't suffer the way we do with our finite minds. To Him, there's no necessary construct of time. Therefore, the difficulties we might have as humans are nothing to Him. In other words, the cross was just as real when Job was walking around as it is today to God. And God says, I'm going to impute righteousness based on faith against that work on the cross. I don't care when it happens relative to your minds. It's my justice that has to be satisfied. And I see it all as one. All at once, you see. That's how you have to think. And that's how you're delivered from any confusion you might have about what it means to even be saved. God sees us all at once. Yeah, sure, he didn't tell Job and Abraham, you know what, I'm going to become a man, Philippians 2, 7 and 8, right? I'm going to hang on a cross. I'm going to solve this problem that Adam and Eve opened up in the garden. He didn't tell them that, did he? At least it's not disclosed. So if that's the case, what does it matter to him, though? He sees it all at once. So they didn't know. So they had fewer details. So they had faith in God, that God would deliver them. And guess what? He did. So that's divine viewpoint. That's omniscience. To God, the plan of salvation, justification by faith, and the means, the cross, have always been simultaneously observed by Him. Therefore, the difficulties we might have as humans are nothing to Him. I was thinking, big picture, just reflecting. All of this, think of it this way. I'm going to try to just net it all out. All of this is easy to swallow, if you remember the simple fact that unrighteousness was introduced at the fall in the garden. Given the fact that God cannot fellowship with unrighteousness, there existed a problem. So now there was a problem. God found a way to give us His righteousness. He found a way to give us His righteousness. However, being a gracious person... He will not force it upon us. Rather, He presents Himself as merciful, as Savior. He became a man, Jesus Christ, so that He could bear the judgment on His own shoulders. 
The judgment has been paid in full, and we cannot fully fathom all the details even of this. Go to 2 Corinthians 9, 15. 2 Corinthians 9, 15. Do you see who did all the work? We know who screwed it up. (laughs) Right? But who did all the work in reconciling us back to Him? He did. There's no merit in you believing. There's no merit in your so-called faithfulness to His commands. That's what people do. It's ridiculous. like, oh, I see all the commands in the Bible. I see them all. I'm going to be faithful to them. And that's going to make me righteous. No, you're going to be faithful to these because you operate and abide in the sphere of love. That's the only time that's even worth anything anyways. The Bible says it's wood, A and straw or otherwise. If you're just going through the motions, don't bother. Going to church is something you do because you love Jesus Christ. You want to get to know Jesus Christ more and more and more. He's your best friend. He's your first love. You don't come to church to try to go, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. here's my little five-day planner. Mm-hmm, and church is on there, so I've got to check it. And that's my faithfulness. And that's justifiable. That's a righteous act, you see, because I went to church. God sees the heart. He says, what are you doing sitting here in the first place? How many times have I asked that from the pulpit? Why are you here? You think God's impressed, even though your mind and your heart is somewhere else right now? You're like, man, it's a nice day. I could probably, if you it's a bald guy, would hurry the heck up. I could get to the beach, maybe walk the beach with my love, you know, <laughs> throw stones and pick up shells. Right? So it's, it's ridiculous, the games we play with God. If your heart is not here right now, you might as well not even be. I shouldn't say that, but you know what I mean. You know what I mean, I hope. You're just playing a game. God's not impressed because God sees your heart. The only way it's good that you're sitting and warming that seat up and eating the snacks <laughs> is if your heart's in it. If you came in because you're going to get fed, you have a problem. These are heart issues, folks. They were heart issues at salvation. Religion wants to tell you it's not a heart issue. Religion wants to give you this little protocol and then tell you you're saved. So that you and all your little relatives who run around knowing better can rest at night. But the reality is, some people are not saved. You know why? Because their heart has never been changed. They've never actually been 100% humble. They've never actually looked in the mirror like Job and Abraham and David said, even after they were saved, man, I'm a sinner saved by grace. I need a Savior. And thank you, Lord, for saving me. Thank you for paying the price. That's what redemption means, to pay a price, to be redeemed out of a slave market. That's what redemption is. Thank you for for purchasing my life. One drop of blood. Thank you for doing this good work. If you don't have that attitude, folks, at salvation, you're not saved. These are heart issues, not protocol ones, not religious ones. Going to church, big deal if your heart's not here. Who cares? It's an insult. These are heart issues. And God justifies an individual and imputes righteousness based on the heart. 
2 Corinthians 9, 15. All of that is indescribable. <laughs> Thanks be to God for His what? Indescribable gift. I mean, how in the world? Look at your ridiculousness that you call life. Seriously, look at it. Look back 10, 20, 30 years, however old you are. Look back and say, I can't even count the ridiculousness. The things alone that have gone through this wretched mind. The mental sins that have traversed this mind of mine. Can you even count them? I'd have trouble in a single day. Honestly, I'd be like, oh man, I'm going to be here all day counting. And while I'm counting, they're adding, because I'm complaining and murmuring, why you make me counting? Uh, let me just add that one again. Why you make me, uh, add another one. Right? I mean, the point is that it's indescribable, this gift that you were given. Religion doesn't like the infinite. Religion likes the finite with little boxes. See, I get to put God in a box. Oh, he's totally describable. Here's his love. Agape. Agape. Repeat after me. Agape. I'm going to put God in a box. I'm going to tell you that God is some man-made doctrine or some man-made definition of love. My friend, you've missed it completely because a little child would have a hard time spelling agape, but Jesus Christ said you have to have the faith of a what? A child. Go figure. I was just having that discussion with someone last night, I think, or email or something. How it's funny, so many people have all these like Greek words memorized and these things. Don't, I know Greek words too, so it's not about that. It's, but the ones, it's the funniest thing, and I don't mean to offend anybody because it's not a cot blanc doctrine. This is Pastor Red speaking from his experience. The ones who throw around these fancy words are usually the ones without the heart. The ones who understand <laughs> Zoe life. Oh, Zoe life. Oh, I know the definition. Oh. People throw around Zoe life. The ones that I've seen that throw around words like that don't understand. They don't. Because they're still on a treadmill. They think God is or Jesus Christ is definable. But yet the word says, what did we just say? Indescribable gift. Second Corinthians 9.15 in the Amplified. Now thanks be to God for his gift, precious beyond telling, his indescribable, inexpressible, free gift. It's because of that free gift, the one we dare not claim to even be able to describe fully, it's through that that we are justified. Go to Luke 18.9, Luke 18.9, where we have our Lord telling a parable. And he says, two men are living the Zoe life in agape love. I don't know why I came... Uh, what's his name again? What's the captain on Star Trek? Kirk. Kirk captain Kirk. It's a Zoe life. <laughs> you must have faith. <laughs> I don't know why that happens. Luke 18, 9. And he also told this parable to some people who 
trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Huh. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Remember, tax collectors were lowly in esteem back in the day. Pharisees had the upper hand, so to speak, at least in society. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. (laughs) Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Can you imagine that? (laughs) I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. One's on works, one has the heart. I tell you, this is Jesus. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Hmm. Up here on the board. Humility means that you are able to receive grace without restriction. The restriction would be, I have to work for it this much, or this much, doesn't matter. Humility means you are able to receive grace without restriction. It means you understand the term free. It means you have no intention of earning grace or repaying God afterwards. That's a humble heart. You might say, okay, I won't repay God then. But you still want to. That's your flesh trying to get the best of you. But that's not humility. That's the exact opposite of humility. Humility is able to receive grace without restriction. It means you understand the term free. You can tell an awful lot about a person in their grace orientation by giving them something. Give them something substantial and see how they respond. If they don't receive it in the first place, they're being arrogant. If they try to later on try to pay you back, they're being arrogant. They don't understand the term free. They don't understand grace. And we've all been there. I mean, that was one of my biggest problems. I didn't know how to receive. I'm like, oh, man, don't give me anything because then I am, I'm under obligation to, like, return the favor, you know what I mean? So don't give me anything. No, I can't, I can't accept this. No, because then I, in my own ridiculousness, I feel like I'm on a, oh, man, it's like three people this week. Now I've got to pay all these people back. Well, that's a person who doesn't understand grace yet. Humility means you have no intention of earning grace or repaying God afterwards. You were justified by faith when you believed in complete humility. If you didn't believe in this true humility, the assumption is that you assigned a, quote, work to it somehow. God wants me to believe? Okay, I'll do this thing. And you like run across the room and swipe, grab the ice cream cone out of his hand. 
If you didn't believe in true humility, the assumption is that you assigned a work to it, thus negating the gift of faith and the imputation of perfect righteousness that justifies. It's a hard issue. You go before the Lord and say, Oh, man, do I have a problem. There is no way I could ever save myself. There is no way. I cannot do this. I can't even do one part of it. Now you're ready to accept the free gift of salvation. And it's at that point, without any works before you, that he imputes faith and perfect righteousness, and therefore you are justified. That's how it's happened from the beginning of human history, regardless of dispensation. The Jews during Paul's time were famous for trying to muddy the gospel truth. Christ came and broke their works for salvation program. He effectively called them out publicly. They wanted to work for righteousness as if it were something earned or deserved. You know, like a paycheck you get from your boss. If that's what you think about God, you're wrong. You don't work for righteousness at salvation or beyond. They are, it's a free gift. It's not a paycheck. Go to Romans 3.21. We're going to read a lengthy passage before we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Romans 3.21 What class DJ and I were talking about the ferocity of these messages and the the indignation that is obviously percolating up out of at least this man's soul. It's because you know God the Holy Spirit, and it's not just this pulpit. God the Holy Spirit, I think, is just sick and tired of people playing games. Sick and tired of it. Saying, "Listen, <laughs> the world's about ready to crack wide open." There's those that believe in Christ and those that don't. Which side are you on? Jesus Christ himself said, you shall know them by their what? Fruit. Now, if everything you do, if your heart remains with those that are antagonistic to Christ, you, my friend, probably have a problem. You probably have a very big problem. At some point in your life, you said, my parents told me if I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm saved. I don't have to go to hell. I'm off. I don't have to go to hell, but I'm going to go live like hell in the world. And it's not about the sins, because we all sin. It's about the heart. Do you want to be there? Why do you want to be there? Because I don't want Christ. I didn't want him then. I just did this checkmark thing, and I don't want him now. I just want my family to leave me alone. And I can't go to that bald guy's church. Man, is he tenacious. He won't leave me alone. I can't, like, shake him. See, if I go to the the feel-good churches, I can just go, (laughs) you know, go listen to some music. Someone pats me on the back. They don't know me from Shinola. And you're one heck of a saint, brother. Guy's not even saved. The spirits look saying, This is ridiculousness. Cut it out. It's ridiculousness. You are ridiculous. 
That's what he's saying to the world. And if you fall into that camp, then you have to listen to what the Spirit's saying right now. And don't blame the ball guy. Don't say, I don't like this guy. Let's go somewhere else next week. Don't blame me for this. This is the Spirit. I'm filled. I'm doing His good work for you. That's what he's saying in the churches. He's saying, let's go, people. What's it going to be? Quit playing games. Romans 3.21. Again, the context here is the, the Jews were constantly trying to say that you had to abide by the law because if you abided by the law, that was a good work and God would find the good works righteous. The, the imputation of righteousness was based on works. And Paul says, no way. No way. Well, what does that say about Abraham then? Because he didn't have the, your law. Well, was he incapable of doing any good works? Is that what you're saying? The argument just goes... Phew. Romans 3.21. So this is, you know, Paul, the great logician, uses logic, you know. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, there is, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed, and that's a reference to the fact that until the cross, the Old Testament sins were, quote, covered. But again, that's a natural argument. I don't want to get hung up. Verse 26, For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. We studied that. The Jews just had a special calling on their life. Some of them got cocky and said, you know, our God's the only God. We're the only ones that are really saved because we observe the law. That is ridiculousness. That is the, the worst kind of perversion ever. What about the Gentiles? You're saying Jews, that you're, this, little, this little dot on a map are the only people that God's able to save? Because those without the law are incapable of being saved because they can't observe the law, they can't do the law? Is this what you're suggesting? <laughs> That's ridiculous. What about your father, Abraham? He didn't even have the law, you morons. That's what he's saying. He's like, what are you ridic- what's wrong with you people? Because they weren't interested in truth, like many people are not. They even claim they're Christians. They're not interested in truth. They're interested in satisfying their flesh 
Even going to church is a fleshly event. Even talking about Jesus Christ at parties is a fleshly event. They, they, they're basically robbing some of his goodness for their own esteem, you see? When everybody's talking about Jesus, thank God I went to class last week. I don't talk about Jesus. Did you ever hear the word Zoe? Z-O-E. How about agape? Little puppets of the flesh. Verse 30. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one, do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh is found, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Huh. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due? But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from the works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited, while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Huh. Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. In other words, before the command, before the law. You're going to say that Abraham wasn't justified before? You see, Paul uses Abraham for the same reason the Spirit's been using him from this pulpit as of late. Abraham is the transcendent illustration of justification by faith. That's the beauty of Abraham's illustration, justification by faith. So all the arguments that the Jews had are thrown out the window with just a little logic. Paul does it, dispels it very quickly. Okay, then, if it's by the law, then what about your forefather? What about Abraham, the one you revere? Uh-oh. Yeah, uh-oh. Verse 11, and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while uncircumcised, so his faith preceded it, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is also no violation In other words, if the law were the way to righteousness, where would that leave folks that lived before the law was even given? Like Abraham. Where would that leave justification by faith? Hmm. 
verse 16. For this reason, it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Verse 17, as it is written, a father of many nations have I made you in the presence of him who he believed, even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope he believed so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, in the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was also who is also able also to perform. Therefore, it was also credit to him as righteousness. And again, that's an indication of even after salvation. You understand that his faith was credited to him as righteousness. Uh, verse 23. Now, hold on, I just skipped my own verse here. Now, not for his sake only was it written that he was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited, as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered over because of our transgression and was raised because of our justification. So, salvation is what happens when you're made righteous in God's eyes. Remember the problem. The problem is we're unrighteous until he makes us righteous. So we have to have his perfect righteousness imputed to us. Now, if you're a humble person, you know that you can't do that yourself. What are you going to do? You're going to live up to the, what, the perfect law? How are you going to pull that off? The only person that fulfilled the entire law was Jesus Christ himself. And if you're guilty of one part, you're guilty of the whole, therefore you're a sinner. You cannot do it. That's all the law was for anyways. Anyways. Salvation is what happens when you're made righteous in God's eyes. That's something that's been happening ever since the fall in the garden. The pattern is the same, regardless of dispensation and or divine revelation. To God, the cross has always been. To God, the cross always was, has always been. So the plan has always been the same. Remember, God sees it all at once. So the plan has always been the same. The cross always was. Jesus Christ, His Son, our Lord and Savior, is and has always been the only Savior. Some of us in the church simply know Him, the capital C, simply know him by name, whereas others didn't. They didn't have all the details. So, are we going to put God in the box and say, well, hate to be you. You didn't know Jesus, therefore you're going to hell. Because the gospel says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Hmm. So how did all these other people 
get saved if they didn't know Jesus Christ. They were justified by faith. They were humble. They understood that they needed a Savior, didn't know him by name, and trusted in God's promises that he would save them. That's what it means to be made righteous, folks. To be justified means to be made righteous. Justification by faith is something that occurs when you believe. Righteousness is imputed to a believer at salvation this way. It is also imputed to a believer in time this same way. It was credited to Abraham as righteousness when he what? Believed. He even believed things along the way like, are you serious? I'm a hundred. Dad, I'm a hundred. And Sarah's womb is dried up. How's this going to work? I trust you. And so he did. And that activity is righteous. Is it not? Yeah. Because it's by faith. And that's Abraham's great example. And it was the same faith he had, the same trust he had in God at salvation. And that's why it's very weird to think about individuals who say they have faith at salvation, but then somehow that faith just goes, poof! It's gone. What happened? Last time I checked, your whole heart has changed at salvation. Unless, what? You didn't have it. Unless you were playing games. Unless, and you fill in the blanks. That's my great fear, folks. For a lot of people in this world, that they don't understand. They don't understand. But this is why we do this thing, right? On a nice Sunday morning, as someone else just went by in their Harley, enjoying the sun. Who knows where they're riding to? Maybe the lake of fire. I don't know. Being made righteous, to be justified means to be made righteous. Justification by faith is something that occurs when you believe. Righteousness is imputed to a believer at salvation this way. It is also imputed to a believer in time this way. With that said, the perfect intro to communion service. Ushers, grab the elements. Please hand them out. Get a little music going. With you, my family, I want to celebrate the solution to the problem. Our Lord and Savior's work on the cross.
God found a way to save us. Amen? All right. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, in remembrance of the person. Let's eat the bread. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink the cup in remembrance of his work. Grab the lights for me, please.
Let's just close in prayer. I'd like to dedicate the closing moments of today's message to those who are without Christ and therefore are without hope. John 3.16 does state, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. If you are indeed without Christ at this moment, know this, have faith in this, and embrace this as solemn truth. Acts 16.31, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. If you believe that you need a Savior and you repent of your sinfulness, then accept the free invitation now that is Christ himself and be saved. If you just believe for the very first time, I'd like to welcome you to the family of God. Father, thank you again for this morning's message, for another day to enjoy the blessing that is you, for a time to fellowship as family in the unity of the faith, and for a moment of peace and quiet as the world continues striving and lurching forward as it consumes itself by means of its own greed and selfishness. Thank you for delivering us from the pressures of living in that world. We are so very grateful and thankful, Father. We do pray for the lost in this world, for they are weak when they think they are strong. They are stupid when they think they are wise. How great is one's darkness when they think they're in the light. Thank you for showing us the light, Dad. May you bless all traveling from this local assembly. It's in Christ's precious name that we do pray by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Thank you.